Grab your Bible, if you would, and open it to Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. And, and we're going to continue, church, our journey together through uh, Mark's Gospel. We're going to pick up uh, this morning in verse 13. We've been learning uh, A to Z about Jesus' mission, about what he came to do in us and in our world. And we find ourselves in chapter 2, beginning with verse 13 this morning. And, and, and let me begin by asking you, have you noticed, uh, I'm sure you probably have, that there's a lot of difference between expectations and reality. Have you picked up on this, right? As you're growing up, you have all these dreams about what things are going to be. Yeah. The difference between expectations and reality. As a matter of fact, I came across a few things here. You know, the hot dog you order never looks like the hot dog you get, kind of, uh, kind of that thing. Or you set out to do, ladies, some really cool baking and it never quite works out, you know, exactly the way you want it to. Or maybe it's that haircut you saw and you thought I would look great in that, but, <laughs> but not so much, you know, uh, or, or, you know, sleeping with pets. It's, there's kind of a fantasy of what it's like and then there's a reality of what it's like. And sometimes you want to look really cool driving, but the reality is not what you think it is, you know, or, or you order that Halloween mask that doesn't look like it did on the ad. <laughs> Looks really cool at one point, but then at another one it doesn't. Or then there's, there's cats. It's always cats that, uh, you know, mess us up. There's a difference between expectations and reality. You've noticed this, you know. Uh, you meet someone and at first you hit it off and you can't imagine uh, what a great friendship this is going to turn out to be. Then you get to know them a little bit. You realize, just like you, they have baggage. You know, you go to that movie you've been waiting for forever and your expectations are sky high and you get there and, and there's just no way it could ever meet your expectations and you go home disappointed. There's a difference between expectations and reality. And expectations, in fact, have the power to warp our perception of reality. They have the power to make us see things, see people differently than maybe they actually are. A couple of years ago, I was in Colorado Springs and speaking at the Save the Storks Conference, a pro-life movement that our church is deeply involved with. And, and while I was there, I got talking to one of the guys who works behind the scenes. His job is fundraising. He travels around the world and meets with donors. Now, there's six, eight people on the staff who do that, but this man holds a special uh, part of that team. He only travels and meets with donors who are millionaires or above. Okay, on up to billionaires. And there are many who are deeply committed to the pro-life cause. He meets with them to talk about how they want to give and how they want to support the movement. And he told me the story about meeting with one man, a billionaire. I'll keep his name anonymous because he would want that. And, and this man is very generous to the pro-life movement, Save the Storks in particular, and he has, he has five children. And here's the sad part of the story. My friend told me that most people have no idea how difficult it is to be that wealthy. And to illustrate, he said, this man has five children, four of whom never speak to him. Why? Well, it's not because dad didn't bless them. It's not because dad wasn't a good dad. In fact, every one of his five children lives in a generous home that dad paid for, 
holds an advanced college degree that dad paid for and receives a regular gift, generous in proportion, that dad gives to them because they're his kids. So why don't four of them speak to him? (laughs) There's some of that, yeah, but the stupidity has a form. He told me how four of them despite all of that, believe dad doesn't give them enough. That he's not generous enough. That he doesn't share enough. It's hard to wrap our heads around that. It's hard to manage. Imagine how that could happen. But that's how expectations can warp our perceptions of reality. And expectations can also, church, warp our relationship to God. Expectations have the same kind of power to impact our relationship with God. In fact, in the Gospels, we learn that it's expectations that turn the religious crowd who who should have immediately followed Christ instead into the enemies of Jesus because very often he didn't meet their expectations. In fact, He contradicted their expectations. And this morning in Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, we're going to see him do exactly that. I invited you to begin with me in verse 13. Let's let's walk through God's word together this morning. Mark, chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. The Bible says, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. We've seen in previous weeks that he often took advantage of the natural acoustics that a body of water provided in order to be able to have more people hear his teaching. He's doing that again. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake and a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. He did what he did. As he walked along that day, however, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, Levi is the Hebrew name for someone you and I have come to know as Matthew. That's his Greek name. He wrote Matthew's gospel. This is the beginning of Levi, Matthew's story with Jesus. Jesus saw Levi sitting at the tax collector's booth. That has great significance. Follow me. Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. We learned a couple of weeks ago that that invitation, come follow me, that Jesus gives in all the Gospels is actually a formal invitation into a long-term mentoring relationship. In that culture, rabbis would go to promising students and say, come follow me, and then they would begin to learn how to be spiritual leaders. Jesus is doing that same thing with Peter and James and John and Andrew. We saw that in previous weeks. Now, though, he invites somebody no one would have expected him to invite to come follow him, this guy, Levi. What do we know about Levi? Well, we know a lot because we know that he was what was called a tax collector. Now, in our modern context, we don't have any idea what that phrase means. Let me tell you what a tax collector was in first century Israel. The Romans, while holding great power in a huge empire, were few in number. And so the way that they governed subject populations, countries they had conquered, was through local people willing to collaborate with them. And in this time, what the Romans would do in Jerusalem and the surrounding parts of Israel is they would hire local contractors to collect taxes. 
And those local contractors were basically the mafia. The government, the Roman government said to them, hey, we need you to collect X amount of taxes from X amount of people. There's not enough of us, so we're sending you out. Use whatever means you can find to collect the taxes. If you need to be violent, be violent. If anybody gives you a problem, come tell us. We'll send the soldiers to deal with them. But it would even be better if you deal with them yourself. And by the way, whatever extra you can skim off the top, you can keep for yourself. These tax collectors, friends, were bad guys, <laughs> traitors, collaborators with an occupying foreign nation. If you want to get a feeling for how the average Israelite felt about the tax collectors, think of the people who cooperated with the Nazis in occupied France or, you know, that kind of a thing is what's happening here. How would you feel about someone who had turned traitor from an occupying country to collect taxes from you. You knew they were collecting more than they should and keeping the difference. You knew they would be violent towards you. Maybe they had been, or maybe they'd been violent towards your neighbors or your family. That's who Levi is. He has sold his soul to be a tax collector. Such people were not popular, and it's not hard to imagine why. Jesus, however, contradicts all expectations because he sees Levi sitting there and he gives him that formal invitation to enter a spiritual training program to become a rabbi. It is a shocking, unexpected moment. The jaws of those who were there would have dropped. What? You're inviting him? You're inviting someone like him? Jesus, what are you doing? Let's think for a moment. How might you and I have tried to reform such people? Maybe we would uh, you know, want to throw them in prison so that they could pay for their crimes and maybe learn their lesson. Maybe we would make stiff laws that would put them in their place. Maybe like the zealots, we would arm, uh, you know, engage in armed resistance against the tax collectors and put together neighborhood watches that would ambush them in alleys. There's a million responses you and I may have come up with. Jesus's is very different. Jesus goes up to this guy doing this and says to him, why don't you come and follow me? He contradicts every expectation. What's he doing in this moment? Let's explore this a little bit this morning. There's an old Australian proverb that says there's two ways to keep sheep on a ranch. One is to build fences, and the other is to dig a well. Jesus in this moment is doing something kind of like digging a well. He had done the same thing with Peter and James and John and Andrew. Come follow me and I will make you into something you aren't yet. Now he's doing the same thing with Levi. He's saying, come follow me and I will make you. Before this moment, catch me church, few if any would have expected somebody like Levi to accept such an invitation. And because they wouldn't have expected anybody like Levi to accept such an invitation, they would have never given one. See how expectations can govern our perception of reality. Jesus gives him an invitation, and here's the amazing thing. Levi accepts it. Not only were jaws dropping because Jesus gave the invitation, 
They also dropped when Levi accepted the invitation. You see, Jesus knew the difference between expectations and reality. I wonder how many invitations have not been given because of our expectations. Jesus in this moment knows better. Jesus knows that Levi, despite his location, despite his condition, would respond to an invitation to go in a new direction. And so he gives that invitation. Very often we don't give it precisely because of our expectations. How many of your expectations stand between someone else and a father God? Boy, there's something to think about. My wife and I pastored in a college town, Moscow, Idaho, University of Idaho, WSU, both within six miles. We did that for about seven years, and, and we had amazing experiences. And, and, and one of the people I will never forget who was part of the church in Moscow was a young lady I'll call Wendy, not her name, because I want to protect her anim- anonymity. When, uh, when Wendy first came to, to Christian Life Center in Moscow, her, her life was a hot mess. Can I just say it that way? All right, completely out of control. She drank too much. She was always chasing guys. She was getting herself into bad situations, sometimes with the administration, sometimes with the law. She, she was a mess. She came to church church though one Sunday morning and this Jesus guy captured her attention and she came back the next Sunday had a big smile on her face and then she said Pastor Greg could I talk to you sometime I said sure and she came to my office that week and she told me about all of her struggles and and as we talked there I said well Wendy here's the thing Jesus wants to lead you to freedom through all this stuff and she said yeah that's what I want but She sure didn't do it. (laughs) Over the next few months, it was just this, oh, I got really drunk on Friday night. Wendy, why did you do that? Well, the other dorm was happening, and pretty soon I got caught. Oh, and then I got involved with this guy. I feel terrible. I need to get a pregnancy test. And I'm like, Wendy, God wants to rescue you from this. And so began my relationship with Wendy. For the next year and a half, Wendy struggled with these things constantly in a bad place. But let me tell you something else about Wendy and the reason Rhonda and I fell in love with her. Almost every single Sunday, Wendy brought some friends to church. She's like dragging them from everywhere. She's finding them at the mall. She's finding them at the dorm. She meets them at lunch. She meets them on the street. She's getting a smoothie, strikes up a car. Hey, come to church. She brought hundreds of people to church. It was amazing to watch her work. Ron and I would sit back behind the scenes and go, the greatest evangelist in our church is the most messed up person in our church. This is awesome. And all around her sat many whose lives were not messed up, who were not a hot mess, and who I never once saw bring any friend with them to Jesus. Now, which of those people do you think thrills the Father's heart? See, Jesus knows something about our faith that we easily lose touch with. And that is that God is much more interested in where you're headed than where you are. Let me say that again. He's much more interested in where you're headed than where you are. Can I tell you today that Wendy uh, works in a big city in the west part of the United States and she's an attorney who handles mega cases. Uh, 
Wendy might be your attorney someday. <laughs> She's doing fantastic. Her faith in Christ has grown her to beautiful, wonderful places. But boy, it didn't start out like that. It started out when somebody who was a hot mess decided to start listening to Jesus a little in her life. It reminds me of the parable that our Lord taught us about the kingdom of heaven. He said this in Matthew chapter 13. He said, Greg, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, when you plant it in the garden, it grows and becomes the largest of all trees. In other words, it's that tiny change of direction that makes all the difference. And while we're constantly busy assessing where people are, God is constantly seeking to just change their direction a little. To just invite them to begin to listen to his son Jesus and to allow his son to redirect them so that they grow into places that nobody expected them to ever grow into. You see, friends, the gospel is about direction more than destination. The scripture tells us in verses 15 and 16 that Levi invited Jesus to his house that night and the Lord went and there were many tax collectors and sinners who came to that dinner and then the scripture tells us something we wouldn't have expected in verse 15 that there were many tax collectors and sinners who followed him. We hear that and we think, well, you can't be that and be this at the same time. Jesus says, oh yes, if direction matters more than location, you absolutely can. You're just in the process of growing. You're just in the process of changing. You're in the process of moving out of that. There were many who followed him, tax collectors and sinners. How can that be? Because the gospel is more about direction than about destination. This is so crucially important because every time we gather as a church, for example, the people of God, there are some of us who are in the mustard seed phase. We're just beginning to listen to this Jesus guy. What's he got to say? I don't know what this is about. And there are others who've grown into trees. We know a lot of what he said, and, and our lives have been transformed by that. Here's the question. Will those of us who are there have the patience and grace and faith to wait for the seeds to turn into trees as well? Or will we condemn the seeds because they're not trees yet? Because they haven't got there yet. Jesus contravened a ton of expectations when he invited Levi to come and follow him. Because Jesus knew that that little change of direction would turn Levi into Matthew, who would not only be one of the disciples and then one of the apostles, but the author of one of the Gospels. See, Jesus knew that it's about direction. Very often, we forget that. We see a person in a location, a condition, a lifestyle, and we say there's no point giving an invitation because look where they are. Jesus says, no, 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 look where they can go. Give the invitation like I do because look where they can go. You know, Ron and I are a dog family. We always will be. Some of you are as well. And we just can't imagine life without a dog. But very often people will see our dog and they go, oh, your dog is awesome. How do we get one of your dog? And we've even had people go and buy the same breed. And then 
and all the wheels come off. Because, see, we did Border Collies. They're high-maintenance dogs. And in the first few months when they come, you had better be on your A game. You had better establish destination in those first few months. Or that dog will grow into a demonically possessed creature that rules your household, (laughs) all right? They're too smart. But if you're on them from the beginning, those first few months, they're so cute, but you spank them anyway, right? And, And you go through all of this stuff. Man, you get that direction established. They turn into the greatest dogs ever. But you have to establish the direction. In the same way, God says, hey, Greg, let's start with a mustard seed, that little moment, and then I'll grow you into something you never imagined you could be. Now, church, please hear me. It's important to understand that Jesus in this moment is not being indifferent to sin. No, 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 not at all. Don't misunderstand. Uh, Later on in Mark's gospel, for example, in Mark chapter 9, he's going to say this. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell where the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. Understand, Jesus is not being indifferent to sin in this moment. His plan for Wendy, his plan for Levi is to lead them completely out of that lifestyle and go in 180 degrees the other direction. His plan for you and for me is to turn us into saints. Not just good old boys who get along with the way it's always been in our small town, but saints who lead the invasion of the kingdom of heaven into the plateau. See, Jesus isn't being indifferent to sin, but he knows that you don't get a tree before you get a mustard seed. And so he says to Levi, hey, You come and follow me. And then in verse 17, he explains himself to the Pharisees who are, their expectations have led them to say, what are you doing? Jesus explains himself. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, fellas. It's the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Church, when we fail to understand this, we live a very different kind of life than our Lord and Savior intends. We become fence builders instead of bridge builders. We wrestle against flesh and blood instead of the real enemy who is spiritual. We become like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal in that we don't really want the lost found so much as we want them to get what's coming to them. But Jesus knows different. Jesus knows better. Jesus knows that people, no matter their location are less lost than we think they are and that oftentimes a simple invitation makes all the difference. I love the story of of Zeke the turtle. It it came up in the Boston Globe newspaper in August of 2012. It goes like this. For 31 years, Zeke the turtle lived a sweet life in the home of Bob and Debbie Young. But on July 30th, 2012, Zeke made a not-so-quick escape after the family cat pawed a hole in the screen door. It's always the cat. And Zeke escaped. When the youngs realized that Zeke was missing, that Zeke was lost, they searched frantically. They loved Zeke. They put up ads and flyers. They even hired a search dog to sniff him out. But nobody could find Zeke. For almost a month, 
he was missing. And as the month drew on, they thought, man, he's so far gone, we'll never find him. But then the neighbor's dog did find him. And it turns out that in a whole month, Zeke had only made it three houses down the street and was lurking in a shrub in the front lawn waiting to be found. He was easy pickings. God knows that most people aren't nearly as lost as we assume they are. And that the difference is often just an invitation. Thomas Rayner wrote a marvelous book about a decade ago called The Unchurched Next Door about American culture, about American society. He worked with a team of sociology students and they canvassed the country, interviewed more than 100,000 people, every demographic background, every city, country, city, every part of the nation. And here's what he discovered. He wrote it uh, in a thesis in a book called The Unchurched Next Door. You can order it on Amazon if you want. But the profound statistic that I'll never forget is that what he found was interviewing 100,000 people across the country, every uh, demographic, 73%, three out of four, of unchurched people in America in this decade say, I'd love to check out a church if invited and accompanied by somebody I know. There it is. How many invitations are not given because of expectations? Lots. Jesus knew better. And so he invites Levi. Church, let us understand that our expectations can warp reality. In the next two stories, beginning with verse 18, there's the same tension between expectation and reality. Look at verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how come your disciples don't fast like John's and like the disciples of the Pharisees? Can you feel the tension there between expectation and reality? Now, in this case, if you want to get technical, this tension that they're feeling actually comes from an expectation that isn't even biblical. Under the old covenant, devout Jews were only called upon to fast one day a year, the Day of Atonement. So the expectation that everybody who is serious should fast twice a week like the Pharisees is just made up out of thin air. But we have lots of expectations like that. Now please understand, Jesus would practice fasting and teach the disciples to, but not as, an, as a religious demand, more as a way to grow your relationship with God, to practice denying yourself so that you can grow in your relationship with God. But it's not a demand, it's a discipline. When I try to illustrate this, I, I like to tell a personal story. When I was a young man, I became a believer. I was all about going to the gym, hour and a half a day, working out all the time. It was my thing. And about a year into my faith, the Holy Spirit started saying, really, Greg, you're going to spend, you know, a tenth of your life at the gym? Is that what your life's going to be about? There's no sin in it, but is that what you want your life to be about? And I, I came under conviction, and, and as a result, I adopted a discipline that I maintain to this day. I won't work out or run on a Sunday. That's something I choose to do. If I said to you, that's God's expectation for you, then I'd be a knucklehead, <laughs> right? So I'm not going to put that on anybody, nor should you. And yet, very often we turn those kinds of things into the expectations that stand in the way of invitations. And Jesus is arguing against it both by his words and by his example. 
The Lord uses an illustration about a wedding to demonstrate, verses 19 to 21, how religion practiced for its own sake is empty. Here's what he says. He says, how can the guests, responding to the Pharisees, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They can't, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the groom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. Now, to understand a little bit of background here, at a wedding like that, when the groom came, it was celebration time. Everybody rejoiced because of what was going to happen. Once the groom left with the bride, then everybody cleaned up and put stuff away and, and got on with their lives. Jesus says when, you're, when the groom is there and the wedding is happening, you celebrate. Kind of today, imagine if you were you know, doing a diet or a fast of some kind, but your best friend is having their wedding and they wanted you to share in their wedding cake. How crazy would it be for you to say, sorry, I can't eat your wedding cake because I'm fasting. No, no, you'd say, oh, it's about you, man. I'm, all, I'm excited about this. You would enter the spirit of the moment. In the same way, Jesus invites you and I to enter the spirit of the gospel, to issue invitations above and beyond expectations. To go to your best friend's wedding and then fast is to miss the point. There'll be time for that later. When your friend is gone and lost to you and there's no more Friday night guys nights to eat pork rinds and drink Mountain Dew and play video games because now you have to be a grown-up because your wife says so, then there'll be time to fast and mourn, right, at that point. But not now. And so Jesus says, hey, hear me, Greg. It's about invitations. It's about mustard seeds. It's about direction more than location. What the Lord is talking to us about here, friends, is so important. And, and he illustrates it by another little word picture. Look at verses 21 and 22. He says, No one shows a, sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. Both the wine and the skins will be ruined. He pours new wine into new wineskins. What the Lord is saying here very simply is step up into the fuller revelation of who God is in me. Step up into it. It's not that the other things don't matter. It's that there are some things that matter more. And one of them is the invitation that we give to people like Levi. The same conflict would occur in verses 23 and following. The disciples are picking heads of grain. The Pharisees say, you can't do that on the Sabbath. Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, every commandment God gives you and I is to bless us. It's not a demand to separate us from joy and freedom and a full life. It's the only way to those things. Jesus says, understand that we practice the Sabbath from that context. We could go on and on with the same idea here, but maybe I can close this morning by sharing with you a story that illustrates what we're talking about. Andrea Dukakis, in a segment on NPR Radio in June of 2018, told the incredible story of a father and a son. The father's name is Frank. His son remains anonymous because he's a homeless heroin addict living on the streets of Denver. Over and over again, as their son grew up, Frank and his wife and their family tried to break their son free from addiction and the petty crime that went with it, but they couldn't. And now, their 24-year-old son was living homeless on the streets of Denver. 
Through the pastor of a local church in Denver that serves the homeless, Frank found out that his addicted son usually showed up at a particular park at lunchtime to get the free sandwiches that the church gave away. And so one day as he prayed, he felt inspired to go to the park and his son showed up. And when he saw him, he said in his own words, it was excruciating. He said, describing the moment, he has no idea I'm walking towards him. I can see that he can't stand up without leaning on a building. He would appear to be drunk to most people, but to me it's obvious that he's strung out on heroin again. I've seen it before. I go up to him and he turns his back on me. I don't care. I hug him. I tell him I love him. And then Frank begins to describe that that was the day that something in him changed and he decided to go above and beyond. That day, he became his son's shadow. He joined him in his homelessness. Day after day, he followed him, staying close, wandering the streets with him, sleeping on the banks of the river at night under bridges. He grew a beard. He lived on handout sandwiches and giveaways during the day. He swatted rats away from himself and sometimes his son at night. When his son got sick, he cared for him in the dark. When he needed to go to the hospital because of an overdose, his dad physically carried him to the hospital. When his son said one night that he just wanted to die, dad said, no, if you die, we die with you. We might still be here breathing, but we'll be dead on the inside. And when asked by Ms. Dukakis why he did it, Frank said, the only thing I could think of was being with him. I know he can come back from all this, and I wanted to keep inviting him to do just that. I love him. Now, church, there's a whole bunch of stuff in our Bible that talks about the wages of sin and the consequences of our actions, and what happens when you don't honor your father and mother, and what happens when you give yourselves to drugs or lust or hate or crime. And it's all true. It's all true. But it's not all there is. Because above and beyond it is a father who seeks and saves the lost. A God who goes to the cross because he loves us in spite of ourselves. And Jesus calls you and me up into that gospel. He calls us as we grow into trees to spread seeds and to wait patiently with those seeds and to give invitations beyond all expectations because we know that the gospel has that kind of power. Church, let us not reduce our faith to something less than this gospel. Let us climb up into the grown-up covenant of grace that Jesus lives out with Matthew and that crowd in this moment where we live like Frank, seeking for his son to come to his senses. Let us live for the sick more than the healthy because they need it more. Let us understand that in this new covenant, we are the adults in a world full of juveniles who have been lied to and deceived by a wicked world. And let us be as patient and relentlessly graceful with them as God is with us. Matthew, Levi, tells us in his account of this moment 
which we find in chapter 9, verse 13 of Matthew, that Jesus said one more thing that Mark doesn't call our attention to. And that is that he quoted the prophet Hosea to the crowd and to us, saying, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You see, church, God wants you and I to learn is that some things are more valuable because they were lost and then found than if they'd never been lost. Let me finish with a story. In 2009, Paula Stanton of San Francisco, California, accidentally flushed her brand new wedding ring down the toilet. She was mortified. She did everything she could to retrieve it, but couldn't. Three years went by, but she never forgot. And then the day came when she noticed that the city public's works department was doing some work on her street and in fact working on the sewer line nearby and she shared with one of the men during a lunch break what had happened to her ring and another man overheard the conversation his name was Ted Gogol and the first man shared ma'am I'm sorry there's like zero chance zero chance that your ring is still around here it's been three years But the next day, Ted, while working on the sewer line, noticed something glittering in the mud, in the muck. He thought, no way. But he reached down and pulled it out, and lo and behold, there was her wedding ring. He went up to the door, and he knocked. When Paula came to the door, he gave her the ring. Can you imagine what that moment was like? The ring was filthy. (laughs) Been in a sewer line for three years. but an hour in lemon juice and peroxide. And Paula was wearing it again and sending everybody pictures of it and weeping for joy. God knows people are a lot less lost than we think they are. And so he invites us to set aside our expectations and give some invitations. And he says to you, if you've never received his invitation, He says, I know your story. I know where you are. I know that you're like Wendy. (laughs) Your life's a hot mess. Nevertheless, I give you this invitation. Come follow me, and I'll make you. Come follow me, and I'll put you back together. I will turn you into someone you never thought you could be. It begins with a mustard seed when you start listening to me. Would you bow your heads with me? Close your eyes this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. God, for those of us who know you, we are the trees that have grown from little invitations. God, teach us to set aside our expectations and to give the invitations that lead other people to you. We pray for that. And if you're here this morning and you've never answered Jesus' invitation, know that he is here giving it to you. He's a living God. He's present in this moment. He is that still small voice that speaks to your heart right now. And he's inviting you to come and follow him. What will you say to him? Like Levi, you can say yes, even though you don't know where that goes, what that means. You can say yes in this moment. 
and begin to experience God as your Father. It can happen right here and right now. Say yes to him. He's listening. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your love and grace. We thank you for your belief in us. Teach us to receive your grace. We pray it in your name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, church?